Western Unicorns. This show is all about the people behind the science of biotechnology and medical devices. Through the stories of the people, I hope that Lab Rats to Unicorns is able to describe the transformative process of you know, how an idea starts in the lab and eventually becomes a life-saving treatment or a product that, that helps patients with diseases. Life-saving. I'm really excited and honored to have uh, David Schoenthal as our honored <laughs> guest today. Um, a great friend of mine uh, and a co-conspirator in many projects along the way. Um, I now need to refer to him as a best-selling author, which is pretty <laughs> exciting. Pretty proud of him. Thank you. We are, uh, at the same time that we're doing this live event, we are taping a soon-to-be-released podcast known as Lab Rats to Unicorns. And the whole basis for the podcast is to interview very interesting celebrities like David <laughs> And talk to them about their journey and try to demystify innovation and life sciences and biotechnology and science, commercializing innovation. And I believe that by breaking down and telling the stories of the journey of the individual, you'll learn a lot about the pathway to, to understand what makes a company great, what makes a very difficult to commercialize technology an actual product. But also, maybe it opens up access. It starts to uh, break down the barriers that we see with uh, others from outside of our ecosystem that are not thinking about a pathway in innovation or biotechnology or med tech innovation. And so um, the whole basis of the podcast is to try to break that down. And um, with that, um, I want to open up the show and uh, provide a little background and uh, further introduction of my colleague here, David. So um, for many of you know this already, but I'm going to walk through uh, his interesting bio. He's a professor of strategy, innovation, and entrepreneurship at the Kellogg School of Management here in Chicago. He's also an operating partner at Seven Wire Ventures, which is a healthcare technology-focused venture capital firm. Um, he is a global advisor at Design for Ventures, D4V, a Tokyo-based early-stage venture capital fund that invests in design-led Japanese startups. And uh, I had the pleasure of working with David uh, in being a co-founder of Matter, which is a 25,000-square-foot innovation center here in downtown Chicago, which is focused on catalyzing and supporting healthcare entrepreneurship and innovation. Um, as a best-selling author, author, David is going to talk a little bit about his book, some of the principles in the book. Um, I'm going to be curious to kind of get at how we might apply some of those principles, not only to the companies in this room, but also just the subject of ecosystem development. And you know, I'm, I want to introduce uh, our audience to some of the terminology that you, you lay out kind of with uh, your colleague, Lauren Nordgren, um, being the in originators and innovators around this concept of friction theory. Um, and I love the, the, the metaphor that you use around the bullet and uh, drag. And so I want you to get into some of those concepts as to how we think about building great companies, but also building great ecosystems. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Greetings, nerds. It's <laughs> nice to see you all. Um, one fun fact as well that we will uh, weave in uh, through this conversation is uh, David is a triplet. So I, I believe am. it's David, but I'm not certain. Yeah. Well, yeah, one of them's a girl, so that's, <laughs> you got 50-50. <laughs> But uh, David, if you wouldn't mind for the audience, um, 
talk a little bit about your journey. You know, kind of what what led you to present day, and yeah. what were some of the influencing features that ultimately uh, drove you to write the book? Sure. Um, I mean, maybe most relevantly to this group and this audience around life sciences, I did not start in the sciences. I started <laughs> I started in international tax consulting, which is a slippery slope to life sciences, as it turns out. Uh, but I worked for a guy at Arthur Anderson in 1999. His name is Shahan Disanayake, and he was actually a cell physiologist from the University of Chicago that just randomly became the head of global tax strategy for Arthur Anderson. And I took that job not because I was passionate about tax, but I took the job because he was somebody that I just knew I needed to be close to. He was really smart, really charismatic. I liked how he thought about the world. And when Anderson fell apart in early 2000s, uh, I wound up going to Deloitte and then PwC, but never really was all that excited about client service and working for a big consulting firm. Shahan wound up going to lead the life sciences portfolio for a venture fund in San Diego called Tavistock Life Sciences. And I was living in London at the time. And I remember it was like a December day, cold, rainy. And in London, it gets dark at like 2.45 in the afternoon. And I was on my way home, standing in the rain, feeling miserable. And I get this phone call uh, from Shahan. And I can hear on the other end of the line, like birds are chirping. And I think waves were crashing. He's like, hello, David, it's Shahan from San Diego. And like, basically what he said was, would you be interested in, there's an opportunity at one of our portfolio companies in the medical device space. Would you be interested in coming to think about being an operating director or director of operations for this portfolio company? And all I really remember is like, blah, 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 San Diego, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, yes, I'd love to. And he's like, well, would you like to know what the company is? I'm like, no, I'm, I'm totally fine. <laughs> So went to go work for a medical device company as the COO, and that was my first taste of entrepreneurship, my first taste of, of healthcare and life sciences. And from there, uh, it's been largely focused on healthcare ever since. And moving back to Chicago, so I lived in California for about 10 years and moved back to Chicago in 2011, where I met John and Pat and Dan and Melissa and all these other really fantastic people who have contributed to building the ecosystem here. And at the time was thinking, you know, San Diego has this really robust, well-supported ecosystem around helping early stage life sciences companies get off the ground. And it's not just about the presence of wet labs like you have here at Portal, but also a supportive community of people who know how to build these businesses because the cost of failure in life sciences is enormous. It's not like you're building a restaurant ordering app where if you ship some code and people don't like it, you've got like infinite numbers of attempts available to you to get it right and iterate on product market fit, you kind of only have one or two chances to get things right in life sciences. And one of the things that helps these businesses get off the ground is having a supportive community of people that can help you understand where the, 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 the landmines are and show you a path towards success. So started huddling up with people like John and, and others to think about how could we create such a thing here in Chicago that was loosely inspired or modeled by Connect in San Diego and Cambridge Innovation Center in, in Boston. And that's how Matter started and got off the ground. And ever since then, have kind of had a portfolio of stuff that I do. I've got some, turns out I've got some attention deficit issues. So You're like I've, a renaissance man. I don't know, maybe. But like, I so I had these different opportunities grow up at the same time. I started teaching as an adjunct at Northwestern and Kellogg, spent some time at IDEO working with their um, design and innovation firm, specifically focused on emerging businesses. And all of those things kind of grew up together at the same time, which created this really interesting portfolio of having some time in the investment world, some time in the academic world, and some time in the company building and applied side. And 
and, and then wrote a book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the, take that segue and um, all those influences that led to the creation of matter, for example. Um, what were some of the things that you observed um, in the San Diego ecosystem that maybe you even brought forward into your current thinking and philosophy as to what you teach at Northwestern and maybe even pervasive through the, through the book. What are some of the guiding influences that came out of that seminal time for you, besides well, being in a place where the waves were crashing? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the weather Birds really helped. Yeah, it was. But, I, you know, I think to do, I think it was Pat Flavin, actually, who, who coined a phrase that I really like, where life sciences, building a life sciences company is like entrepreneurial Mount Everest. And you really have to be relentlessly focused on the goal because there's all sorts of things that are going to cause you problems along the way. And there will be all sorts of moments to give up, Hey, uh, all sorts of moments to give up. And uh, that in order to do that, you kind of need people rallying around you, giving you advice, supporting you, uh, making you feel like you can do it. In San Diego, there's a community in San Diego in particular called Connect which is a group of mentors that surround a particular business. Sort of like when, when, when I first met John, he was building Chicago Innovation Mentors, which is quite similar, which is finding a technical founder or a small team trying to build a life sciences company and surrounding them with experienced mentors to help them be successful in shaping their, their road to market. And I got plugged in as an entrepreneur in residence at Connect and was really uh, impressed and moved by how important it was that these individuals were donating their time to helping these businesses get off the ground and try to make them successful. And they weren't doing it because they expected a return. They were just doing it knowing that when one business succeeds in San Diego, kind of everybody in San Diego reaps the benefits of that because the community gets stronger, more capital flows in, you have more experienced entrepreneurs that will support additional companies. And like San Diego, Chicago had many of the same building blocks. We have great research institutions. We have phenomenal larger healthcare companies that can help show the way. But what we didn't have, unlike San Diego, was this kind of town square center of gravity, this density that inspired people to bump into each other. And, you know, from Chicago back in the early days of matter, we used to say like the Chicago healthcare ecosystem extends all the way into southern Wisconsin and all the way into northern Indiana. And unless you design some place that has some gravitational pull, people from GE Health will never meet people from the orthopedics industry in, in Indiana. Like, it just won't happen. So how do you create a place that pulls people together where you, where you provide programming that can give them clues, show them a roadmap of how to make their businesses successful, give them that continuous tailwind of support that, that helps people climb entrepreneurial Mount Everest and also create the conditions for serendipity to occur. Well, and you use the word design. Um, talk a little bit about the influence of design and the way that you've thought about matter and even just as it carried on from there. Um, do you think that you use those principles in, in getting started? I know in your book, you talk a lot about the use of ethnographies. Mm -hmm. And um, if you could share for the audience some of the principles and learnings that you developed in your role at IDEO, for example, and how you applied that to, to matter. Yeah. And maybe just a, a, a brief look back or a post hoc on did what you designed turn out to be what happened in actuality? And what, what, uh, what's your assessment on current things with, with regards to the ecosystem in Chicago? Yeah. Uh, okay. Let me see if I can remember the questions, but how, the impact of design. So yeah, I, I actually just on Friday retired from IDEO after 10 years. So uh, I learned a ton 
working at IDEO about human-centered design. And I guess the biggest takeaway is really that at the end of every business process and at the end of every business model, whether you're in B2B, B2C, B2B2C, whatever the permutation is, at the end of every business process or product is a human being. And the more deeply you understand the needs of humans, the more interesting and creative ways you can be of service to them. And I remember back in the early days of Matter, one of the things we were talking about is like, how do we make science cool? How do we make being a biotech entrepreneur, being a life sciences entrepreneur, med tech entrepreneur feel as aspirational to people as being a consumer tech entrepreneur or being a business to business enterprise entrepreneur? And I think in order to do that right, you've got to consider what inspires somebody to get into life sciences in the first place. Like, what is their motivation? What meaning are they seeking? What are they trying to accomplish as their mission? And then thoughtfully design for the humans that are doing that work and all of their needs that are both functional, like office space and lab space and, you know, mass specs and other things that you've got here, but also social and emotional. And I think it's really easy in the real estate development or architecture space to think about the functional needs people have and not think as much about the social and emotional needs they have. And I think that when incubators do their job really well, they're catering to not just the functional needs, but also the social and emotional needs through programming and also that support so that when time get, times get tough, you've got this community that, that can lift you up. Yeah, we talk a lot about that at Portal Innovations kind of being the software to the hardware. Mm. Hardware being the infrastructure, the instruments, the hard environment that's required to do this type of work, but software being equally important as well, the programming, the community, um, all that goes with building a, a very healthy biotechnology company, creating that at scale um, beyond just episodic success. I mean, we in Chicago have had great companies come out of here in the life sciences arena, but a lot of it has been more episodic. Um, and I think what's beginning to take root now from my own perspective is uh, progression towards sustainability, where you're seeing repeater management teams come into the ecosystem, raising capital from, uh, at the moment, from external markets, but with uh, the legitimate chops to actually build valuable companies with great exits. Yep. I mean, you know, your, your uh, role with uh, Glenn Tallman and Lee Shapiro at Seven Wire Ventures is a perfect story there yep. with regards to that re repeater management mentality, and they just keep going back at it and being very successful. Yeah, and they keep doing it here yeah. in Chicago, exactly. which I think is really important also. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. a very important element. What? Uh, so I want to get to the book content in just a minute, but before we get there, I want to um, dig a little bit more deeply around what was the driving factor that caused you to write the book, and then How'd you do it? I mean, how did how did you do it? I mean, it's it seems really yeah. uh, almost impossible given the many things that you have your hands in. Uh -huh. I just well, want to know, like, how'd you do it? Yeah, well, I mean, so a lot of it is is credit to my co-author Lauren Nordgren. So Lauren's a colleague of mine at Kellogg. He is a psychologist and organizational psychologist, and he and I have worked together for for years at Northwestern at Kellogg, and. One of the things that has always been interesting to both of us, me from a venture capital and entrepreneurship standpoint and him from a psychology standpoint, is why is it that people resist clearly good ideas? Why is it that people say no to things that they ought to say yes to? Is it the thing that's the issue or is it the human that we're trying to serve that creates the friction? And so years ago, we started putting our heads together and designing some experiments and doing some research to figure out if we were to create a point of view or a theory or a framework that explains why people say no, and more importantly, helps them understand how they can get over that no or get over that resistance, 
that would be interesting to both entrepreneurs and innovators and change makers and people trying to create social programs and city planning and anything that you can think of. So we uh, just kind of naturally gravitated to having a, a think about this particular problem. He from explaining the human psychology standpoint, like what goes on in our minds and our brains that make us think this way. And me from an applied side, how do we take these learnings and apply them to, to business? And in terms of how we wrote the book, the short answer is like the pandemic really helped um, because we weren't traveling. We had a lot of time to ourselves in our houses and it was actually a really nice creative outlet at a time where I think everybody felt meaningfully constrained. Did you have some type of system or schedule that you used <laughs> or, or did you follow up? A, a so funny. No. Well, yeah. so if you talk to Lauren, so Lauren is one of the most disciplined human beings I've ever met. Lauren would wake up every day at 5 a.m. and he would write till 8.30. Like he would just sit down at his computer and like, like a machine every day, crank out pages. I uh, don't have that discipline. And so for me, it was like, I'm just going to wait till the, like the inspiration comes like yeah. a <laughs> jazz musician or something. I'm just going to wait until it moves me. Yeah. And so days would go by where I didn't write a word. And then like all of a sudden one, two days in a row, I'll just be in front of my computer for the entire two days. Like so a binge you, writer. Of like, a, like a yeah. binge writer. Yeah. So if you look at like the graph of productivity, Lauren is like steady Eddie, like create pages every day, pages every day. And I'm just like this really <laughs> dramatic sine wave that, uh, I think it took some getting used to for him, <laughs> but, but it worked out. How about though, you know, we often, you know, think about to, to be able to kind of scale your idea and ultimately, you know, your work product being at least for now, this book, um, getting to this, this point and being able to produce that, uh, body of work. Um, it takes a lot of, um, immersion, you know, and, and just almost obsession, I would bet to create that outcome. What impact or how, how did you manage your family? You know, how do you balance your ambitions and desire to kind of make an impact on the broader community with, you know, your, your family environment and trying to, trying to balance on both sides? Uh, yeah. So I've got two small, well, smallish kids. I've got a 10-year-old and a 7-year-old uh, and an enormously patient and supportive uh, wife named Erin. And she, I think, and this is actually true of every risk that I've ever taken, whether it was starting businesses in San Diego or starting a fund or it matter, which, I mean, there was periods of time where we had just moved to Chicago and income was like a little lumpy. And she said, wait, you're, you're spending all this time on matter. This is a volunteer thing. Like, are you ever going to get paid for this? Like, <laughs> and, and never put too much pressure on me to say, you know, really, you should do things that Hey, uh, she was always of the mind that like, I have faith that all of this will wind up working out for, for you and for the community. And I think the book was just another example of her saying, you know, this is going to be, we'll, we'll, we'll try to work around this, but I have faith that you know what you're doing and we'll support you along the way. And so with her kind of looking after, especially when we're homeschooling kids and without her running interference, it would have been a lot more challenging, but, um, Again, I think just all being at home together created an opportunity to do something like this that would have been harder in like a normal period of time. Who were some of your early um, inspirational forces? I mean, I, I think back to some conversations we had about your dad being a very funny guy. Hmm. And I think of you as being a very, a funny, very funny guy. guy. Yeah. And, um, you know, to what degree was he an influence on your path or others? And maybe, 
interweave in that the role of humor in, in taking risk? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, so my dad is definitely got a great sense of humor and I think uses that to, uh, lift people, lift groups of people when things are a little bit challenging. So I, I, I try my best to infuse humor into difficult situations. It doesn't always work. Sometimes it, the humor doesn't work either. Um, I think maybe in terms of my family, one of the most inspiring individuals is probably my brother, Ben. So you mentioned that I'm a triplet. I've got a brother, Ben, who is a professor of Buddhism on the South Island in New Zealand. He's an expert in Buddhist anthropology, specifically Buddhism and law. Right. I know. Like a hot field. Man. Right? Yeah. Buddhism and (laughs) law. Uh, And he is not only like a brilliant scholar, got his PhD from the University of Chicago and has all these awards and accolades and really highly regarded in his field, but also a phenomenal storyteller. So he can take really complicated ideas and turn them into narratives that make them make sense to people. And I've always been really impressed with his ability to balance scholarship and storytelling and make complicated ideas accessible. Uh, So I think in a lot of respects, I'm not even sure he knows, but in a lot of respects, I kind of look to him as being like a really great example Mm. of how you can turn ideas into narratives and put them in a book and put them in a, in a package that hopefully speaks to people. That's great. Yeah. That's great. Awesome. He also is very funny. He may be one of the funniest people. <laughs> um, maybe switching gears and, you know, getting to the crux of the matter. Let's break down the book. If you could talk a little bit about some of the governing principles and just especially kind of those four frictions. Yeah. And what we might uh, first describe the concept and uh, I love the metaphor of the bullet. Yeah. Um, maybe you could, you know, weave that into sure. your description. And then Are you going to af- tell me what I'm supposed to say? No, no, now, John? no, Is that no, how this works? no. After, like, after I would that, like you to talk about the bullet. And then no. I would- <laughs> after that, okay. uh, we will apply it to our companies and our ecosystem. Okay. Yeah. So, so John's mentioning this metaphor that we use at the beginning of the book. So. The human element, is, again, is about why people resist new ideas, why people resist change. And once you understand why, you can figure out how to overcome it. And the metaphor that we use to introduce it, the, the, the metaphor we introduce at the beginning of the book is what makes a bullet fly. That a bullet, when it leaves a gun, travels out of the barrel at 1,500 feet per second. When it's shot with a really steady hand of a good marksman, it can travel up to two miles and still hit a target with pinpoint precision. And so we'll ask audiences of people, what makes a bullet fly? And instinctively, everybody's first answer is usually gunpowder. It's gunpowder that makes a bullet fly. Gunpowder creates an explosion inside of the chamber, which creates gas and pressure, which pushes the projectile out towards its target. And that is not a wrong answer. It is absolutely true, but it's only partially true in terms of why a bullet is so successful in, in achieving its objective and hitting its target. The other is that a bullet is aerodynamic. Because on the way from the gun to the target, a bullet encounters all sorts of problems. It encounters friction, or sorry, it encounters drag, wind resistance, the force of gravity that are all trying to stifle it on its way towards its destination. And unless a bullet is aerodynamic and flies in a certain way in a rotating spiral, it will be stifled by these forces that stand in its way. And the question is really, all right, well, what makes an idea take flight? What makes a product or service take flight? And I think our instinct as innovators is in order to get something to market, let's give it a lot of fuel. Let's give it a lot of gunpowder. Let's make it powerful. Let's make it uh, magnetic. We'll try to shine a bunch of attention on it by marketing and sales. And we tend to focus on the thing is the, the force is the, 
the thing is the the means of achieving an objective and change. And we don't think about all of these headwinds and all of these forces that stand in the way of an idea as it makes its way to market, these innovation headwinds. And so the book highlights four of these innovation headwinds that we call frictions that stand in the way of any new idea anytime you're trying to get somebody to do something differently than what they do today. And the frictions are, number one, the friction of inertia, human beings' overwhelming and often really peculiar desire to stick with the status quo. We are creatures of habit, quite literally, and no matter how good a new idea is, we always tend to favor the familiar over the unfamiliar. And so the force of inertia keeps us rooted in what we do today instead of what we ought to do tomorrow. The second friction we talk about in the book is the friction of effort, how much exertion, mental, physical, economic is required to enact that change. And it's not just how much physical effort it takes to do a thing or perform a task. It's also how much cognitive effort needs to be exerted by somebody in order to figure out how to do it in the first place. If the change is ambiguous and not clear, it is harder for people to do and therefore causes more friction and more chances for that idea to fail. The third is emotion. What undesired negative feelings does our new idea cause in others? And these are often the very people that we want to help. Anytime you're changing from something you've been doing for a while to something new, there's anxiety, there's fear, there's trepidation, there's nervousness. And if we don't address that, these things might silently stand in the way of change. And finally, the fourth friction we talk about is something we call reactance. And reactance is a human being's aversion to being changed by others. And no matter how good the evidence is and no matter how good the data is, if we feel like we are being changed or forced to be changed, we will push back on that change with equal, if not greater force than the change itself. And I don't think you have to look much further than public health in this country to understand that force in action. And in particular, in healthcare, you can see how all four of these frictions would show up in big ways, even with small changes. So anytime you're trying to get a clinician to practice differently than they do today or to adopt a new technology, there's always the status quo standing in your way. There's the ambiguity of figuring out how to use this new process or procedure. There's the anxiety about what it might mean for your practice or your learning curve or how you're going to look to your colleagues if you're still learning something when you're meant to be an expert. And of course, physicians... Uh, tend to, not all, but most tend to value their autonomy and their ability to practice the art and science of medicine. And if you're telling them how to do something, that tends to cause a lot of, uh, of reactants. So you can see how these forces can show up in small changes like buying a pack of gum for the first time to trying to pilot or, or launch a new life sciences product or technology. Uh, and the more we're able to spot them and forecast them, the easier they are to address. So we have uh, a handful of uh, life sciences uh, entrepreneurs here in the room that are thinking about their uh, path to market and designing their bullet, if you will. Mm. Um, you talk a little bit in the book around uh, Livongo. Yeah. Could you maybe describe you know, how they were successful in ultimately hitting the target? Yeah. Uh, it's always a work in process, but yeah. they've done a nice job of really kind of, um, you know, transforming uh, the way that uh, healthcare is practiced in, in, yeah. in one particular vertical. No, it's a good example. And maybe before I, I talk about that, the other thing that I should say is most people's instincts, if you feel this impasse where the idea is not getting traction, and, and the best way to think about friction is maybe in a consumer product where you're trying to build a consumer business and you're trying to get people to buy your widget, your app, your piece of clothing, whatever it might be, and they show up at your website or they show up in your store and they fill their cart with stuff. And at the end, right when they're about to convert or transact, they walk away, they abandon their cart. 
Like, why is it that people do that? Clearly, there was enough attraction to the idea to get you to show up to the store or the website in the first place. There was enough magnetism around these products to get you to put them in your cart. There was obviously not a ton of aversion to the price because you've gone through the process of, of thinking about purchasing it. What is it that stands in somebody's way that causes them to literally abandon something at the last moment? And when we are product-oriented or when we're fuel-based in our mindset, our instinct is, well, there's something wrong with how we're packaging it, or there's something wrong with its features, or there's something wrong with its price. So we always tinker around with the asset or the thing, instead of thinking about what is it that's going on with these people that might make them resistant to this change. And in the case of Livongo, uh, we talk about this in the book, specifically in the chapter on emotion. How do you understand the emotional friction that's, that's inhibiting people from making a change? And emotion is tricky because people don't usually wear them on their sleeves. You don't see somebody who's not adopting a diabetes uh, management service and ask them why they're not adopting it. And they don't usually say, well, I'm afraid or I'm fearful or I feel threatened or I like those are things that people don't typically talk about. You have to kind of discover them. And one of the ways that Livongo has been successful is rather than going out and doing ethnography and market research and relying on design research to generate empathy for the type of people they're trying to serve. I mean, I, I know this is being recorded and it's going, going to go on on the web, but one of the, the challenges I do have with some of the practices of design firms and consultancies is that we think that when we send out a group of 32-year-olds to go sit in on somebody's kitchen and watch them make their breakfast or watch them inject insulin or whatever it might be, that simply by being in their home, you can understand and generate empathy for someone. Uh, it's certainly better than not doing it all, but like, there is no way that I is a white male can understand what it's like to be an African-American female living in South side of Chicago or how me as a 45 year old can understand what it's like to be 90 and have arthritic hands and manage all of the different facets of my life. Uh, we can make a little bit of an effort to do it, but in order to really understand people's lived experience and design things in a truly human centered way, you really need to have those people on the team. Like these individuals that you're designing for need to be part of the design process. And one of the things that Livongo has done a really nice job of is making sure that the people they're designing for are actually inside of the company. So I think at last check, about half of Livongo's employees are all sufferers of chronic disease, huh. yeah. many of whom are, are people living with diabetes. Hmm. And because they are the people they're designing for, they understand this problem in a way that me as a uh, uh, someone who doesn't have diabetes could never really gather. And you see this show up both in the product design itself, the actual form factor of the device, uh, the case that the device comes in, but also in terms of the language that Livongo uses to speak about their customers. So it's weird. You'll hear Glenn Tolman say this a lot. Diabetes is one of these interesting diseases that we, when people suffer from this disease, we call them by the name of the disease. We call them diabetics. Like, can you think of an other than like hemophiliacs? Can you think of another disease where we call people the name of the disease? And to those of us that are not people with diabetes, like we're like, it never would have occurred to me. And that's exactly the situation. Like it never would have occurred to you that calling somebody the name of their disease could Might actually be, be quite offensive. <laughs> and also, I don't want to be branded by a condition that I'm managing. Like right. you don't call someone with cancer a cancer. You're right. 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 So. Why is it that we don't have these little subtle human factors and em empathic moments in our products and services? Mm -hmm. And that helps Livongo understand not only how to design a product, but also how to communicate with the people that they're trying to help. And in the book, we talk a lot about how they go about doing that. And that's all because 
people that work for Livongo deeply understand the experience because they've lived it. That's fascinating. And you know, maybe just taking it one step further, um, as I've mentioned, we have a lot of innovators in the room, but we also have innovators of uh, ecosystems, you yeah. know, people building space, build, people building community, people building cities and, and economic development uh, interests uh, that, are, that are represented in the room. Can you take the model developed in your book and try to postulate or talk a little bit about how we might apply some of these principles to building a healthy transparent ecosystem. Yeah. First of all, I'm impressed that you use the word postulate. John. That, <laughs> well, that, you're a that, professor. That makes you, I mean, sa- that makes you, had, that makes you sound even thinking, nerdier than I know you are. As soon as you accepted the invitation to come today as a best-selling author, I had to think about something uh, uh, professorial and yes, postulate yes, was the best thing I could yes. come up with. I could have been panacea. That it could, right. um, so first of all, I think this, this framework applies to any time you are trying to get groups of people, organizations, individuals to change from what they would otherwise do to something new. And that can be, again, as simple as a product adoption, but it can also be designing communities. And I think we saw this a lot at Matter, for example, when we were building that, that in order for Matter to be successful, you have to get people to collaborate in ways that are inorganic or at least had been inorganic. Like universities don't always play nice together and large uh, medical device companies and biopharmaceutical companies don't always play nice together. They always say the right things, by the way, in public forums. Like, yes, we want to collaboratively build the community, but like they are competitive and entrepreneurs don't always want to be in the same co-working space as large companies because, you know, idea theft is sometimes a thing. And like, how do you design a place that actually is trying to get people to behave in ways that are very inorganic for them? And we talk a lot about these types of changes in the book. And this is another great example of reactance where people are resistant to being changed by others. One of the ways I think we were successful in the early days of matter of making this work, and I have to imagine is similar here at Portal and at MHub and other places around the city, is the importance of co-designing those spaces with the people that you're actually designing them for. Having workshops, and and, uh, Megan Webster from Gensler is here, like Gensler did a beautiful job in the design of matter of facilitating workshops to bring in all of these different stakeholders from startup companies to large companies to universities and having them be actively involved in the design process, not just the space, but the programming, what were things that people were anxious about, what were they hopeful about. And yes, you don't have to adopt every one of these ideas because not every idea is a great idea, but even just by having them out on the table and evaluating them and looking at them side by side, people who participate in these sessions feel a sense of inventorship over what's created. And it's different to show up to a place when you have felt that you had your hands or fingerprints in designing it than it is to have a space that you had no hand in designing and then saying, all right, now move all of your innovation activity to the space or participate in events and activities in this space. So... I genuinely feel that co-design and including people in the process of developing these communities is essential for their success. Today's episode was brought to you by World Business Chicago. Connect with World Business Chicago, the city's economic development agency, and discover more about the city's vibrant life science ecosystem. From Chicago's global universities and research institutions to its diverse pipeline of skilled talent and vibrant neighborhoods, as well as its cutting-edge lab and office space. Chicago has the fuel for your company's success. There's no better place to build a life science company than in Chicago. I'm going to ask one more question, and then because we are uh, filming in, in front of a live studio audience, I will I invite, some, invite some questions from the audience as well. But are my, we filming? I thought we were just recording. I'm teasing, oh, I'm teasing, okay. yeah. Because so. I would have smiled. Yeah, right. Um, 
But the one uh, point you bring up in the book, too, is um, bringing the outside in. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what that means and why it's important, particularly maybe through the lens of academic innovation? So when we think about trying to bring a new therapeutic to market, a new device to market, um, the concept of bringing the outside in. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, 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 it's interesting. Um, we just talked, so I teach a class called Forging and Funding Healthcare Startups uh, at Kellogg with Pete McNerney, who's just a legend in the med tech investing space. And one of the things we talk to about these students about the challenges in forging a healthcare business, but also funding healthcare businesses, is the idea itself is kind of only half the battle. Adoption is really the thing that makes it go. And just because you have a good idea doesn't necessarily mean that that good idea will be adopted. In fact, sometimes that good idea creates a problem for someone else. Uh, we had a company present two nights ago in our class, and they're creating a product for for uh, women's health specifically around fetal monitoring and moving more of the diagnostics that would take place in a doctor's office to people's homes. And one of the students asked a phenomenal question of this innovator, which is when you, because these are procedures that are covered by codes and reimbursement, that when you move this diagnostic towards the home, which is obviously in the best interest of the mother, who loses in that situation? And what you kind of understand is like the doctor kind of loses right. because they miss opportunities to get reimbursed for these diagnostics yeah. that they would otherwise perform in the office. Right. And yet the doctors have to be the ones recommending it to the individuals to use in their home. So what may be good for public health and may, may be good for, for the mother is not necessarily good for the business model of the doctor. And I think we see this play out in healthcare all the time where what is clearly a good idea gets stifled because somebody's business model breaks. Right. And to me, that's just... I mean, it's a it's a it's a cost and a risk of doing business in healthcare. But you could either be Fail. frustrated by it, yeah. which in it in it is very frustrating, or you can think about all right, well, what are the frictions that are underpinning this resistance, and how might we not only design a great product but design its entry into the market to try to minimize some of these forces standing in the way. And again, the reason this book is called the Human Element is because. Usually the very people we're trying to help are the very people that resist. And if we understand what's causing that and think about some of the remedies we include in the book, um, designing that path to market can be a lot different and a lot more successful. So open it up to the audience for any questions. I can see a lot of eager hands going up right now. <laughs> yeah, one at a time, please, please. <laughs> Dr. Landay. In the U.S. academic health systems, we don't have a history of entrepreneurship or innovation, even when we write our grants. I mean, when I go to other countries and write a grant, let's say in Australia, they look at patents, they look at innovation. We don't in our systems. So how do you start, and, and it's starting around the U.S., but how do you take and, and create those new ideas and get people to think more about is their idea worth going forward and patent and moving it forward, even at the most basic level? Not We're already here at Portal where people have, have gotten to that point, but how do you even start? What's the beginning of that journey? That's what I'd like. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a way to answer this through friction theory, and there's a way to answer it more generally. I mean, the way to answer it more generally um, is, well, let me answer it through friction theory first. I think when people become, and this is not universally true, I think this is less so for younger PIs and younger researchers. I think now when younger PIs or potential uh, faculty members come to Northwestern or they go to the University of Chicago or UIC 
in addition to seeing all the laboratory space and learning about this scholarship taking place at the university and all the research facilities, one of the stops on the tour is always at the tech transfer office and always at the local incubator on campus. Because I think, at least in my experience, and I'd be interested in John's take on this as well, at least in my experience, younger researchers are much more interested in the commercial application of their technologies. And a lot of the reason I think people go into biology and chemistry and engineering is not just because they want to create something novel for the the credibility that comes from that scholarship, but they want to create something that actually has meaning and impact, impact. in people's lives. Yeah. And there's a Wall Street Journal article yesterday that, that was forwarded to me uh, that talks about why people choose entrepreneurship. And if you sort of break down entrepreneurship into its first principles, a lot of people say they want to be entrepreneurs. They really don't want to be entrepreneurs. They want autonomy in their career. They want flexibility. They want creativity. And they think entrepreneurship is the thing that solves that equation the easiest. But not everybody has the metal, has the fortitude, has the mission, the personal mission to become an entrepreneur. But one of the things this article talks about is a reason overwhelmingly people choose entrepreneurship is for meaning, to have meaning. And I think that at least with the PIs that I'm working with at Northwestern, a lot of the younger ones, that meaning thing is really important. And so it, I think to some extent there's a generational rift. But I also think that that we in the academic community need to try to shift away from where we place value. Like the number of citations of a paper is not nearly as valuable as the number of lives that you can impact with a technology. And so I would hope that over time we will start thinking about the commercialization of a thing in addition to the novelty of the scholarship because otherwise, you know. It, it's changing before our eyes. I think it is a generational shift. Some of it's, I think, pressured by the business model of higher education yeah. um, that's at risk in many ways. I mean, the, the old way of building a top-tier research institution has become more difficult as government funding has continued to come yeah. down. Yeah. Tenured faculty numbers are, are beginning to uh, be lower than what they once were. So there's an increased motivation by universities to engage with the outside community. And then as you accelerate that, that's why you see so much attention on this innovation arms race amongst yeah. the research institutions is all about creating an environment where they're able to attract yeah. and retain the high quality faculty that want to create right. impact. They want to go beyond publishing in science and nature and sell, and they want impact. And that impact is, I want to see my idea, you know, in biomedical yep. uh, uh, verticals, it's going to be around treating a, a patient. And so they see that oftentimes through a startup or working with the outside industry. And so all of these institutions are very motivated to bring in that, that innovator applied faculty member that is hardwired yep. to try to uh, commercialize. And I, I remember just even back at the Polsky Center within the University of Chicago, I often looked at us as the tip of the spear of recruiting the, the best and brightest. Um, it was almost like, uh, you know, a Division One football program where you would bring in the four-star recruit and show them the locker room and the jerseys hung in the back of the locker. And over the left is the is weight this room. what happens when you get recruited? To, to <laughs> it is. It's, it's very reminiscent yeah. of when I was when going Notre through. Dame recruited you? Exactly. Yeah. I had to say no yeah, and decided to know, choose the entrepreneurial path, which it, it's turned out yeah, okay. It's, it's but, right. the, uh, but, but f f following on with that, you know, I mean, that you can see, you know, you point out the window, that's 
where you're going to uh, practice during the week, and that's where you're going to play on Saturdays. We had the same type of pageantry at the Polsky Center to recruit um, this top new faculty because it will become the lifeblood of these institutions yeah. as this business model has changed. But and, and so going back to friction theory, I think one of the reasons that we stay with this norm is familiarity, right? Inertia. Like, this is how we do it. This is the way it's always been done. And rarely do we say, well, is this still the right way to do it until we're forced because of drying up funding from NIH or whatever it might be. But the other thing I would say is in order to give people confidence, which is dealing with the emotional friction, because I'm a researcher. I've been trained on doing research. I haven't been trained on running a business. We need to do a better job of training faculty on commercialization. We need to make the unfamiliar of commercialization feel more familiar. And there's a program at Northwestern. I'm sure there's also one at the University of Chicago that we call Management for Scientists and Engineers, which is a summer-long program where we teach them management fundamentals. We teach them how to commercialize new technologies. Now, it's not in the same level of depth as an experienced business co-founder, but it gives them enough conversancy in it that it demystifies what is otherwise a really squishy and ambiguous journey. And I think the more we can make unfamiliar ideas feel more familiar, the more likely we'll have that kind of success. Great. Thanks. So, uh, David, as we close out, um, now that you've written a book, what's, what's next for you? As you look, as you look ahead, um, I know you're in the thick of really enjoying the fruits of your labor at this point, but um, as you look out over the horizon, any, any things that we should be watching for on your trajectory as you move forward? Well, um, is there yeah. a movie? Is there a movie? The movie, out? right? The, the, right, right, <laughs> right, right. The, the, <laughs> we're going we're gonna to turn this into a screenplay, uh, the human element. Yes. Uh, no, I mean, so uh, to be honest, what I'm really excited about is the application of this work, the application of this theory. So I get a lot of now inbound requests from companies. How do I apply friction theory to this thing I'm working on? How do I apply it to that thing I'm working on? So I'm really excited to see how different organizations begin to apply this and collect more stories to hopefully continue to update this book and update this work and update our website with ongoing examples and tools that people use to overcome the headwinds that stand in their way. So I can't thank you enough for being part of the show today. Oh it's gosh. a real honor to have you here and um, look forward to all like, the This great- is such a trip, dude. Look at look what at, we're doing. This look, is, at, this look, is great. look at where look, we are in your right. cool look new at the impa- Look at the impact. Yeah, look at your no, vest. I'm very proud of you. So let's, yeah. uh, Thanks, man. let's close out and enjoy the rest of the day. Thanks, buddy. Carry on. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for joining us today. It was another great episode. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with our guest today and were inspired the way I was. Looking forward to reconvening again in two weeks. Please visit our website at labratstounicorns.com. We welcome any of your comments, feedback, ideas. If you want me to ask certain questions of guests or you have ideas of people that we should be interviewing. That is all goodbye. Goodbye.